So I'm kind of double pumped up to open the word to you all this morning from Isaiah 53. We're going to be taking a little detour from Matthew for this week and next. Little mini series in uh, Isaiah 53. This is a pinnacle chapter in all of the Bible because it is the gospel of the Old Testament. It's the chapter that gets put aside in the ceremonial worship of the synagogue or has traditionally in Jewish uh, worship where they just don't understand Isaiah 53. It doesn't really make sense. So it fell off the liturgy, at least as I have heard um, tell. And uh, we need to bring it back and preach from this text to show that this is the key that unlocks the whole Bible. Look at verse five of Isaiah 53, if you found that. This is the centerpiece of this chapter. Uh, This is the third servant song within the second half of the book of Isaiah, this grand master Mount Everest book within the Bible. Uh, Right in the middle is Isaiah 53, and at the center of the middle of that chapter is verse 5, because really this song begins in Isaiah 52, 13, so it's right in the center, and it says, but he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Hallelujah, right? I mean, this is, this is the gospel. This is the truth. We've been set free. We prepare room in our hearts for Christ who came because he's the one who loved us enough to deliver us from our sins. He took off the scales from our eyes so that we could see we were blind and now we see Jesus as pinnacle as everything to our lives and gives meaning to our day to day and launches us with hope for eternity. There's been a lot of trials, a lot of sadness, and a lot of suffering that we can sort of chronicle and remember throughout the last couple of years, and a lot of isolation, a lot of uh, people feeling hopeless and not knowing how to get together or not, and, and our Christian hearts long to be together because we commune around this central verse and theme, which is our... Our transgressions have been borne by Christ and by his stripes we've been healed. We've been made right with God. We, we celebrate during this holiday season with conviction, don't we? The world celebrates Christmas in the sense of its sentimental um, you know, desire to get together with family and we understand that. It gets together around all kinds of themes and, and different things that inspire the heart on a level. But we go deeper than that because we have been born again convictionally to believe these things and these truths of Christ are real to us. They're as real as anything that we can imagine. I was talking to a a man from the first service and he was responding to these ideas uh, and talking to me and he said, the world is trying to find the answer with its five senses and the, the irony is it cannot find the answer with the five senses, with the physical senses. It's the heart that's open, that's been made, born anew and afresh. Christmas brings a level of magic, but it also, for Christians, it brings a little bit of a a level of sadness because we see people celebrating and trying to get together on this level, but they can't. They just can't pierce the void. They, They have not yet believed. They might speak of Jesus or see something of Jesus. Really, Jesus is now marginalized in our culture more than ever before. But they don't really know him. And we need 
people to know Jesus. So I'm asking the question, why don't people believe in Jesus? You'll still see in um, Target, this uh, upscale store that I shop in, or, uh, or, you know, the Cars grocery store or whatever you'll see in the magazine racks. Uh, Time magazine will, you know, chronicle something of Christ and use proofs and uh, proofs and historical analysis and data and, you know, the sheer volume of prophecy to try to prove Jesus on a level that's similar to the scientific method, something that feels a bit flawed. You know, archaeological digs mean such, you know, it's almost like we're proving Bigfoot's real for, for serious, you know, and, and this really happened and there are aliens. I mean, that's, that's the level that we're talking about when you go to the History Channel or, or you go to magazines to try to prove Jesus without the Holy Spirit. Only the Holy Spirit can prove Jesus to your heart in a way that changes your life for eternity. A new heart is what's necessary to believe. So why don't people believe? People use a lot of arguments, even in Christian circles, in the name of apologetics, they try to prove Jesus. As if you could say, if, I, if I'm good enough as a, an apologetist person, as I can defend the faith, then I can really win somebody to Jesus. But apologetics won't win someone to Jesus, Jesus if it's just on an evidence level. You know, you, people I've heard say, and good-hearted people, and I believe these things. There are so many prophecies. There are too many prophecies um, not to believe them. 80% of them have been proven true already. And so we have to believe that this is Jesus, right? I mean, you'll hear that kind of argumentation. Secondly, the historical gap between when Isaiah spoke or, or the prophets of old, Hosea or Micah, when they spoke of Bethlehem or, or out of Egypt, I shall call my son, or these, these passages about Jesus, that, there was a 700-year gap between when that was spoken and when it took place and documented in the New Testament. So it has to be true. Or you'll hear the third argument, the prophecies are too precise, uh, precisely fulfilled not to believe. Bethlehem was named. It's an obscure town. Yes, David came from it, but it's named and it's, it's memorialized because the Savior was born there. He would be crucified. He would be pierced through for our transgressions, Zechariah says. And so crucifixion as a form of execution wasn't even developed until the Romans. And so it had to be true that All of this precise prophecy means that Jesus is Messiah. Fourthly, logic is too strong not to believe. The arguments for Jesus are irrefutable. He's, uh, no one could have lived and been Jesus but Jesus. He's a Jew from the line of David. His lineage through Mary and Joseph matched perfectly and meshed together perfectly. It has to be the Messiah. All of history is named B.C. and A.D. before Christ and Anodonomy because of Jesus He declared himself to be the son of God. So with all the miracles backing up Jesus, this is the C.S. Lewis argument. It had to be true. Either he's a lunatic calling himself God or you take him as God. Look, I like all of these things. The archaeological digs. I like all the volume of evidences. Um, But here's the last argument. The story of Messiah is too inspirational not to believe. Just think about it. Mary, Joseph, teenagers, the Messiah is born. They're, 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 you know, Joseph is, is believing the angel's message. The, the titles of Jesus, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. He's born in a stable. It's unparalleled poetic inspiration. That's why we believe all the centuries you have always attested to Jesus being the Messiah. So this Christmas story has to be true. So 
All of these arguments are arguments that I like, but they're at a level. And you'll even hear these arguments in secular arenas where people go, yeah, we we feel the romance of Christmas around these things. But I want to take you to a level deeper and, and ask you, why doesn't everybody believe in Jesus? I mean, all of these arguments are out there. Why doesn't everybody bite and take it and say, this is truth? It's because there is a big, big chasm that needs to be crossed between truly believing and being lost in unbelief. Evidences are strong, but they're just good chemistry in an argument. Stacking up enough evidences does not change someone's heart whatsoever. So what am I saying? Am I saying that the wool could be pulled over our eyes, that people could have staged the, uh, the answers to the Old Testament prophecies and they're just trying to um, match it together? Well, I would say if we were talking about anything but God's inspired scripture, then I would say anything is possible. We could be duped. We could, we could be sort of lost in confusion where, where someone has told us a lie and Jesus isn't God unless it was scripture saying so. I, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That's the core of everything. The Holy Spirit gave us inspired scripture. The Holy Spirit gave us infallible, inspired, holy scripture. And every Old Testament prophecy is scripture. It's spirit-inspired truth. And so every Old Testament prophecy, because it's scripture, had to come true and will ultimately come true. All of the scripture about Jesus is true because it's truth. It's truth. How do you solve the world's unbelief? You bring them the scripture. You bring them the truth. And yes, some of these arguments I was talking about are based directly out of scripture. But I just want to be clear that Isaiah 53, you believe it or you don't believe it in terms of your faith. You either have true faith and saving faith in scripture or you do not. You say, well, how is this comforting? Well, it's comforting because if you want your son, your daughter, your grandchild, your spouse, someone that you love so dearly to believe, all you can rely upon is scripture. You can't rely on archaeology, historical evidences, scientific facts, um, philosophical or logical reasoning. You can't, those things don't change the heart. The scripture is what changes the heart. Jesus died for our sins. He bore our iniquities. And you believe that as a genuine believer because the Holy Spirit has borne witness in your heart that this is true. It's truth. It's scripture that God has given us. It's such a gift. That's how we celebrate Christmas. We, we don't try to convince people to believe this is true. We believe it's true because it is true. And the Holy Spirit tells us it's true. The world, ironically, by bringing up Jesus at all, almost weakens the case for him by making him superficial, by bringing him up, talking about him in our culture, and then in a blasé way, brushing him aside. We need to stand on scripture. And I want to diagnose, though, why Israel did not believe. And I want to look at their unbelief in light of Isaiah 53, because Isaiah 53 is so clear. 
And I want to take us on a little bit of a journey of Israel's unbelief to the point where they ultimately will believe just to talk about what is going wrong in someone's heart when they're rejecting truth. Because by unlocking Israel's unbelief and ultimately seeing their true belief, it can help us to be better evangelists with the truth. We need to guide people in truth. Jesus's whole mission, the first Half of the narrative stories of Jesus or the lion's share of them is Jesus reaching the Jews, going to his own people and people rejecting him. So I want to look in terms of their past, present and future unbelief to belief and take you on that journey in view of Isaiah 53. This is what Paul was doing in his quoting of Isaiah 53, even verses 1 and 2 in Romans 10, 16. He says, have they not all obeyed the gospel? For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed? And he has what he has heard from us. Well, who has believed what he's heard from us? In Romans 10, 17, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So even Paul was marrying up this dilemma of Jews not believing. And then the only way to believe is through faith in Christ. Isaiah 53 is a remarkable um, chapter of the Bible. It, it tells us something of what the Jews should have been prepared to believe. They should have seen Christ coming. Of all the people in the history of the world, the Jews should have seen their Messiah coming. Messiah came from their ethnic race. Think about it. Jesus is a Jew. He was of their own. Romans 3 says to the Jews were given all of the law and the prophets. The oracles of God were entrusted to the Jews. This is a very special um, place in our Bible that we should look Isaiah 53, according to Moody, was his creed in print. Spurgeon said it was holy of holies. It was the divine writ of God for which we should read with our shoes off. Polycarp, second century father, says the golden passional of the Old Testament. Augustine says it's the fifth gospel. Calvin says the gospel according to Isaiah. Luther said we all should have it memorized. All of us, myself included. Well, this author, he wrote... Um, Isaiah. Isaiah wrote it, I believe, um, somewhere between 790 BC and 739 BC. He was a contemporary to Hosea and Micah. He prophesied during the divided kingdom. You have Israel and you have the southern kingdom, Judah, and he was primarily prophesying against Judah that was wrapped up in idolatry at that point and ritualism, and they were spurning God. And so the Babylon, the, the Babylonian empire was going to come in. And you know, the beginning of the book of Daniel is right around 600 BC. So 50, 60 some years later, you have the, the Babylonian captivity that begins. And ultimately, as Isaiah chronicles, it, Babylon itself would be crushed some 300 years later. And so Isaiah is getting its arms around all of this. And then we know that um, Israel came back. It came back to its homeland under the Persian kingdom. The Medes who destroyed, the Medes and the Persians ultimately destroyed Babylon. All this took place around Baghdad. If you're just a historical geographical nut, you, you'd want to know that. Um, but some prophecies during Isaiah's lifetime were fulfilled. 
And then some things are what are called prophetic foreshortening. And that's where Isaiah would say things that were happening in his lifetime, but also things that would happen in other people's lifetime and ultimately things that would happen in the end times. It's like looking at mountain ranges when you're flying out of Alaska. You see all the dips and gaps between the mountain ranges flying across Canada, right? But if you see the Chugach Range from, you know, O'Malley Highway or whatever, it all looks pressed up next to each other, right? And so Isaiah is like that. You have a lot of things that are being said right up next to each other, but there are huge gaps of time between the events. And so you have a reference to what we know as the millennial kingdom and then a reference in the next phrase that'll be the eternal kingdom. And that's how Isaiah works. It's just a lot tied together. It's a majestic book that even approaching age 50, I'm getting my arms around still. I feel like I haven't been worthy to really fully grasp and understand all that's here in this great book called Isaiah. It speaks of the day of the Lord that's coming, the changes in nature that'll happen, animals in our, in our future world, Jer- Jerusalem's status among the nations, the suffering servants' leadership in the future. All these things are amazing and, and there for us. It's an evangelistic book. It's a book that's been paralleled to our Bibles. Our Bibles have 66 books of the Bible. They have 39 Old Testament books and 27 New Testament books. And so Isaiah can be cut in half, 39 chapters that are really looking at judgment on Judah, and then 27 chapters that look towards hope and salvation in the, the suffering servant that's coming. And the Second half of the book of Isaiah, these 27 chapters can be broken down into four prophetic songs that are talking about the servant of the Lord. Isaiah 53, which actually this servant song, it's the fourth servant song of the four in the second half of the book of Isaiah. And we're talking about um, it just looking to Messiah. And you say, is Jesus really in Isaiah? Well, look at, look at chapter 42 just real quickly. We're just going to kind of look at these servant songs. Um, 42, behold my servant, verse one, whom I uphold, my chosen and whom my soul delights. I will put my spirit upon him who will bring forth justice to the nations. That's all about Jesus. Psalm 49, it goes more in terms of the servant song of Jesus the servant song, and it goes, listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword, and in the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. That's all about Jesus. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. This is Jesus. Isaiah 50 speaks of the suffering servant as well, the third song. And then finally, beginning beginning in Isaiah 52, verse 13, through the end of uh, 53, 12, that is the final servant song. It's a mission that only Jesus could fulfill and only only God could, um, you know, put in inspired print for us to see. It's about a Messiah who is much more than just a chosen prophet. This is the true God-man who, in obedience and humiliation, suffered. Isaiah 53, 9 and 10, he was in the grave with the wicked. Isaiah um, 53, 5, we've already read, he was crushed for our iniquities. He was the scandalous servant of the Lord. He was dying as a substitute for those who deserve to die. This was scandalous for the Jewish mind. They wouldn't receive it. 
It's interesting, the parallels of Isaiah, they do parallel our Bibles a bit in that um, Isaiah 40 verses 3 through 5 is actually a reference, you can look there, it's a reference to John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus, talking about his coming. Um, You see verse 3, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway to our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain of the hill be made low, and uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. All of this and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord is spoken. That's the beginning of the the hope-filled portion of Isaiah. That's the beginning of these servant songs about Jesus coming. It's just like our New Testament, where in Matthew 3, 3 and John 1, 23, it's about John the Baptist. And just as Isaiah closes its 66 chapters, Isaiah 65, 17 and 66, 22, talk about the new heavens and the new earth. Revelation 21 and 22 talk about the new heavens and the new earth. This is like a miniature Bible in front of us, the book of Isaiah. What a grand Mount Everest for us to to learn from. And we're just going to scratch the surface of it. But I did want to give you a little bit of an overview to see what we have in front of us. Our question is really this morning, why don't people believe in Jesus? What can close the gap of unbelief to belief? What can unlock a person's heart from darkness to light? Uh, The Jewish History of unbelief stands as this dark, dark, bleak backdrop to Messiah's light, right? Messiah has come, and Israel did not believe. The Jews would not believe. Look at verse 1 of Isaiah 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us? Isn't that our question this morning? Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Who has believed? Understanding these words um, comes more clear when you understand that this is Isaiah and he's speaking on behalf of the whole nation of Israel. He's speaking prophetically and he's speaking in the past tense. This is a song of lament. It's a song of repentance. It's almost like it's the Jews looking back through the quarters of time and saying, Why did we not believe up until now? Who has believed this message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This is actually what's happening in the mind of Isaiah as he says these things. If you're taking notes, you can sort of put at your header. We're answering why people don't believe in Jesus as Messiah. Tracing Israel's three opportunities to believe. A past opportunity before Messiah came. A present opportunity when Jesus was there with them. And then a future opportunity that'll happen at the end of the tribulation period. It's amazing. You know, if you, a lot of people are reading Revelation these days in light of the times, in light of the conspiracies, in light of all that's going on. And I don't think that's a bad idea because we are in the last days. But there will be 144,000 literal Jews that will come to faith in Christ. And at the end of the tribulation, the prophecies are clear that ethnic Israel will believe on a grand scale. And what is happening here in this Prophetic moment in Isaiah 53.1 is Isaiah is speaking. He's been judging in current time, 700 BC. He's been, he's been judging Judah. 
But now he's turning his attention forward, looking prophetically into the future of a day when the nation of Israel will turn and ultimately repent. This is a day still yet to come. This is coming at the end of the seven-year tribulation period where all of the nation of Israel at the final moment, it's their second chance. Jesus is returning. Daniel 7 says he returns in the clouds. That parallels with Revelation 19 where he comes and Israel will go, we're not going to be like the unbelieving world here. We're going to believe. But within that believing moment, they lament the fact that they haven't believed up until now. That's where this is coming from. Does that all make sense? Did we blow gaskets just now? Is everybody okay? Let's just just take a moment and breathe. That was more for me. Okay, here, listen, I I took a lot of this material from a book that was published a couple years ago from John MacArthur. It's called The Gospel According to God. So you can find a lot of this material there. Here's a quote from it. It says, the prophet, regarding Isaiah 53.1, the prophet is describing the sacrifice of the suffering servant from a vantage point that looks back from the time still in the future, even now. Seeing the cross from a prophetic perspective near the end of human history, the collective response of the Jewish people when they finally see it, finally understand and believe the one they rejected as promised Messiah. The rejection's real. This is point one of our little series. Point one, the header is this. This is before Messiah came, Israel should have seen him coming. Before he came, they should have seen him coming. They had all these passages, all these predictions. They had Isaiah 53, and they should have seen him coming, but they missed it. And so this is their lament looking back. And that's why this is written in past tense, because it's already happened from this future vantage point. In John 12, you have the present version of Jesus presenting himself. So you have, they should have seen Jesus coming. They, they rejected him when he came. And this is what Jesus said to them in John 12, verse 36. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of the light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they did not, they still did not believe in him. All this power of God, all this stuff on display, Jesus right there, and they still wouldn't believe. And so John is getting his mind wrapped around what is going on in this event. And he ties together Isaiah 53 to try to make sense of it. He says, so that all this is happening. So the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. In other words, they were going to reject Jesus in the, when he was presently here. It was going to happen. And he documented by Isaiah 53.1, Lord, who has believed what, what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed It says, therefore, they could not believe. For Isaiah said he was blinded the eyes and hardened the hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, I would heal them. It says, Isaiah said these things because he saw the glory and and spoke of him. Isaiah knew what was going on. He understood from Isaiah 6 that Jesus is the high and exalted one of the temple. And he would have understood had he been there in John's day when Jesus was there, that that's the same one. Jesus in the flesh is Yahweh of Isaiah 6. And so ultimately, the Jews would one day lament missing him when he first came. And they would lament and say, who has believed this message? In other words, why didn't we believe before and now we do? 
This is pointing to a great day when the nation turns to Christ in mass to Jesus Christ. Hosea 3, 5 speaks of this. The children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God. David their king, they shall come in fear to the Lord in latter days. Zechariah twelve ten. I will pour out in the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. When they look on me, on whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him. This is a mourning of faith and repentance and lamenting that they hadn't believed until now. Zechariah 13, 1. On that day, there shall be a fountain opened on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Listen, Romans 11 ties all of this together, verses 25 and 26. It says, lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to, underst- I want you to understand this mystery. Brothers, a partial, a partial hardening, that's the Jews, has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it's written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. So again, back to Isaiah 53. He's standing in real time, 700 BC, but prophetically, he's standing in his mind at the end of history. And he's speaking for the nation of Israel, and he's saying that this is what it looks like to lament that we didn't believe until now. We had rejected the king, but ultimately the remnant now believes. Look back. I want you to just back up and look at chapter 52 and look at verse 13. I've been saying this is really the beginning of the the lament song. And for you to fully understand all of what's there in Isaiah 53, you've got to get the running start of verses 13, 14, and 15. There's big handfuls of history and redemption dynamics happening here. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall, shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond the children of mankind. That's when he was beaten brutally and put on the cross, so shall he sprinkle many, many nations. This is when he's coming back again. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. There'll be believing nations, but most nations will not believe, and Israel will believe. Some will believe, but most will come under the sword of Revelation nineteen fifteen. Jesus comes back with a sharp sword and strikes down the nations and rules them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of wrath, the wrath of God Almighty. So, a lot of gloom and a lot of doom. But where is the hope? I want to show you the hope in this passage beginning in verse 2. Verse 2, For he grew up before him like a young plant, And like a root out of a dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look on him. Who was this one that had no majesty, who had no attractive appearance, who came sort of out of the soil like a root out of the ground? This is Jesus. You say, why didn't the Jews believe in Jesus? They had all the prophecies, everything pointing to him. Well, the Jews wanted the power leader. They wanted, they wanted the, the person to come in like a mighty oak 
tree that they could say, man, this is our leader. This is the one who we're going to follow. This is our attractive king who's going to rule like in Revelation 19 with a rod. He's going he's to smite the nations with a two-edged sword. That's our king. But they miss the idea that he first had to come like a tender shoot, almost like out of a, a tree, um, a root of a tree, where you have this little shoot that, that shoots up. It's a little sucker, you know, root that really a good gardener will just, just whack it off right away. It wouldn't last a minute when you're gardening. That's the Messiah. That's the one that Israel needed to follow and believe. What does it take to believe in a little tiny root from the ground? That little picture, someone who would be similar to, remember the story of, of David being selected as king in the town of um, Bethlehem, you know, in, in the line of Jesse, Samuel shows up. You can read about this in, in 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel 9, they talked about, oh, we want Saul because he's, he's dark and he's handsome and he stands head and shoulders above everyone else. And Samuel himself is needing to be argued into the position by uh, or Saul himself is being argued into his position as king by Samuel in that chapter in 1 Samuel 9. Like, hey, you need to come, you know, leave, leave your livestock alone. Don't worry about this because you are the man. And then later we know Saul forsook the Lord and truly God was looking for a man after his own heart. And David was that man. And so in 1 Samuel 16... Samuel is still needing to learn the lesson that you need a servant of the Lord. Someone who who you don't immediately think would be the leader is the one who's actually the leader. 1 Samuel 16, 6. When he came, Samuel, he looked at Eliab. This is the first son of Jesse. Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Verse 7. And the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on his height or his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. This is the key. This is Israel's unbelief. They, they didn't want that kind of leader, right? They didn't want to see as God sees. The Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass by Samuel. What about this guy? Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse said, Shema, pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse made seven of the sons pass by Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all of your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, the baby of the family. Yes, I always like the baby of the family. All right. And behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and he had beautiful eyes and he was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. And Samuel took the horn of the oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. And the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. What's the point? The point is that they missed who Messiah was to be. That's, this is... This is what makes the Christmas holiday theme special. It's the surprising Messiah that's born in obscure Bethlehem as the baby who is God incarnate, deity for us to worship. Why? Because the Messiah comes uh, in, in frailty and majesty at the same time. 
as, as the suffering lamb, and yet he would be the future lion, you know, to, to save and smite the nations. He is all of this to us. And Isaiah is capturing this. And he does so with a very unique word that's in verse 1 that I don't want us to miss. It's, again, the lament of, uh, of Israel. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Who was able to see this one as the arm of the Lord? This tender shoot that is obscure is the arm of God, the arm of Yahweh. Everywhere in Isaiah up to this point, the arm of the Lord is a picture of massive, incalculable strength. This is the arm of the Lord that took the the Jewish people out from bondage, rescued the nation, split the Red Sea, parted it. The arm of the Lord did that. The arm of the Lord was promised to crush Babylon one day that was getting ready to capture Israel. This is the arm of God. Right, And so you're like, well, this arm of God, when he comes as our Messiah, is going to be awesome. He's going to be just so incredible that we're going to worship him. But all of that is an external version of faith. That's, that's, again, I'm paralleling that with, you know, the history channel. And, hey, we need to get excited about Jesus once a year because all these prophecies are true and all this is great. And I'm not saying that God can't use some of that. But that's not saving faith. Saving faith is a faith that sees the arm of God coming as a little infant baby. That's the key. Listen to these verses regarding the arm of the Lord, and they're true. Isaiah 40, 10, Behold, the Lord comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. Isaiah 48, 14, Assemble all of you and listen. Who among them has declared these things? The Lord loves them. He, perf- he shall perform the purpose on Babylon, and his arm shall be against the Chaldeans. Isaiah 51, 5, My righteousness draws near. My salvation has gone out. My arms will judge the peoples and the coast lands hope for me and my arm and for my arm they wait waiting rescue Isaiah 52 10 the Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God the arm of God but coming now who to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed who gets this he grew up Before him, like a young plant, like a root out of a dry ground. This is the nation of Israel in the future, looking back going, we didn't see him coming. We missed it. The arm was supposed to be this big thing. And it was, it was a little baby. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. And then verse three, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with the grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. All of that is the foreground to understanding what he did for us. He came as the suffering servant. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that, was, that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Not a power leader, but a suffering servant to save us. Why didn't the Jews see him coming? I'd want to answer this as we close looking at Luke 24. And this is where I'll build into the Good Friday. Friday. I keep calling Good Friday Christmas Eve. The Christmas Eve service. Let's say it. Christmas Eve service. Okay. That's where I'll be. Luke 24. 
Luke 24, verse 17. This is Jesus. He's raised from death. And he wants to basically approach the two on the road to Emmaus. This is Clopas, one of them. It's actually very funny if you, if you understand what Jesus is doing. He's literally doing either what a frustrated teacher does or a parent does when you want the child to get the answer and to learn it themselves. He's just baiting them to, okay, follow with me. Why are you sad? What's happening? And then they're parroting the gospel back to him. It's really kind of funny. Okay. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Clopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? Just baiting him, being the guy's incredulous. And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. We wanted the big leader. We wanted him to do this. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened which is all pulling into the prophecy that Jesus had said. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. You can see Jesus going, yeah, yeah, third day, right? And I came, and I was crucified, and the angels said, okay. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb. Some of even their friends went to the tomb And it was just as the women had said, but him they did not see. They didn't see him there. And he said to them, this is Jesus saying, oh, foolish ones, here it is. Here's the issue. And slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Now, where does he go to prove himself, right? Not archaeology, not logic, not, you know, trying to, to work it in terms of some kind of scientific method to prove that he's God. He just goes, he says, beginning and beginning with Moses. This is Jesus. And I'm always amazed at Jesus in these power moments. Where does Jesus go for the most powerful um, response or revelation of himself? Well, the Old Testament. <laughs> like, hey, Jesus incarnate, God man is standing there. Let's do a Bible study. What's the key to unlocking someone's unbelief? Let's do a Bible study. Let's just let the scripture speak and the Holy Spirit work and then the eyes open. And that's how people believe. That's the core. I'm not saying that the other apologetics is all wrong and evidence. I'm just saying the core of everything, the heart change happens here. And he goes, you know, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Then he does it again, verse 44, to the 11 disciples in the upper room. These are my words that I've spoken to you while I was still with you and everything written about me and the law and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Jesus has just shown up to them in the upper room again, right? Here he is and he's, let's do a Bible study. Then he opened their minds to understand the scripture. How does someone believe? The Holy Spirit opens someone's minds and they go, aha, I believe that all along. A lot of times that's how people are. And you're like, oh my goodness, I've been trying to get you to, okay, great. The Holy Spirit gets all the glory and all the credit. 
And so he opens their minds and said to them, thus it is written that Christ should suffer on the third day, rise from the dead and repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in, in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are my witnesses. So that's the, that's the story. This is what answers everyone's deepest need. Isaiah 53, chapters 1 to 39, mainly judgment, chapters 40 to 66, good news. The central chapter of that second section is Isaiah 53, and the central verse of Isaiah 53 is verse 5. He was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are, we are healed If this has been revealed to your heart, you are blessed. And it's everything to you. It's everything. On Christmas Eve, we'll go back to Luke 24, and I'm going to open up those prophecies and make that connection. But it's to bring about um, the understanding that as Israel should have seen Jesus coming, and then they should have believed him when he came, Today is the day of salvation. If you do not yet truly believe in Jesus, today is the day not to miss him and to embrace him once and for all. Many of you, some of you were at a funeral I went to yesterday with you at Chapel by the Sea. It's appointed unto man once to die and after that the judgment. We can't know when we're going to die, but we can know Jesus who's the author of life. Believe on him. Embrace him as Lord and Savior of your life and do that because the Holy Spirit is telling you to do that and opening your mind to do that. That's how we believe. That's the answer to unbelief. The Holy Spirit opens our hearts and we believe the truth that's in front of us.